Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. week on the Garden DC podcast, we're talking to Nicole Mitchell, site manager of Green Spring Gardens, and Brenda Scarpool, curatorial horticulturist at Green Spring Gardens. Green Spring Gardens is a public garden that includes a historic 18th century plantation house and is located in Alexandria, Virginia, and is operated under the Fairfax County Park Authority. Welcome, Brenda and Nicole. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. Morning. And good morning, and great to have you both here. And on such a cold winter day, I'm I'm sure you're happy to be inside for a little bit. Oh yes. Yeah, I was out there yesterday in the wind. <laughs> nice. It's been a, it's been a bit bitter lately, but things are still going on in the garden, right? Oh yes, lots to do and lots to read about and talk about and lots of classes going on. So I wanted to start first with Nicole to talk a little bit about Green Spring itself, how people can visit, um, what they would see there, and the fact that Green Spring just turned 50 years old. Yes, great. Thank you, Kathy. There is always something to see here at Green Spring Gardens. Um, of course, right now we still are, um, you know, waiting our way through the, the COVID pandemic. So our visitors, um, we do want our visitors to know that our grounds are open and through the entire pandemic, our, our walking trails have always remained open. Um, and today the grounds are open dawn to dusk, but we always, we want our visitors to know that our facilities remain closed. Uh, to prevent the spread of the virus and for our for, for public health and, and safety, as well as the, the safety of our staff and volunteers. So what that means, uh, please come visit Green Spring. Uh, the parking lot um, is open. The gate is opened uh, no later than nine o'clock in the morning. Um, that, that gate stays open. We do lock that daily at five, but again, the grounds are open dawn to dusk and it's nice uh, now that we are getting just a, an added a minute or two of daylight each day. Um, and then since the, our facilities are closed to the public for walk-in visitation, we actually have added um, a portageon um, in our parking lot so that way uh, there is a, a facility for our visitors to use. That's great to know, Nicole, because I know that comes up uh, a lot when I when I'm being asked by people about the local public gardens they can visit and um, whether there's nearby facilities for them. And I know that Green Spring is one of the few public gardens in the area that allows leashed dogs. Correct. Correct. Yes, it is. It is very rare for a public garden to be dog friendly, but here at Green Spring, we are. Uh, Fairfax County leash laws do apply, so all pets need to be on a leash. 
Um, we do have a rule that they need to keep out of the garden beds, um, which we understand uh, with, with pet owners that can sometimes be a bit tricky, but we do ask uh, that all pets uh, keep out of the garden beds. And of course, uh, to pick up after your pet. We also try to share with visitors uh, that we do not have uh, pet waste stations. So please bring your own bag. Uh, we do have trash cans uh, through the gardens, uh, but we are not, we, we don't have a, a doggy supply station uh, for our uh, four-legged friends. So we want folks to make sure they know, to know that they need to bring their own bag. Mm -hmm. So on your best pet manners. Yes. And actually, Kathy, I would love to also at this point, um, share some of our garden rules. Sure. Um, because it it's wonderful that we're dog friendly, but we do have a few other rules that can be surprising to some of our first time visitors. Uh, things, uh, we, there are no bicycles allowed in the gardens. Uh, our pathways are strictly for pedestrians. Also things like balls, kites, um, other, you know, just kind of athletic equipment is also not allowed at Greenspring. Um, being a public garden, we do everything we can to protect our, our natural as well as cultural resources here at Greenspring. And, and the number one natural resource we have is our plant collection. Our plant collection is actually an accredited museum. Greenspring is accredited by the American Alliance of Museums. And, and what, is, what is accredited is the collection of our plants. Uh, so often when you think of a museum accreditation and collection, you think of artifacts and, and, and certainly uh, that, is, that is terrific. Um, and here at Greenspring, we're very proud that our plants are part of that collection that's accredited. So we do try to make sure that our, our pets are, are not trampling them when they don't mean to, um, that a, a, what was supposed to be a, a friendly game of ball doesn't end up um, in the garden bed. So we have all these rules in place to make sure that we are protecting our resource um, here at Greenspring and that the number one resource is our beautiful plants. Those are great reminders, Nicole, um, not just for Greenspring, but for all public gardens or botanical gardens you might be uh, visiting because a lot of people think of them as just an extension, say, of the park system or, you know, their local park and don't think of them as a plant museum, as you say. Yes. And it's it's interesting because, you know, we're, we're, we are not that type of park. Um, when we speak to visitors about this, we always try to make sure that um, that they understand the reasons behind the rules. But we also try to share with them the other nearby parks, you know, Fairfax County Park Authority. Um, has more than 400 parks in Fairfax County, um, from large district parks to your small neighborhood parks, to, to resource centers like Greenspring, uh, one of our resource-rich sites. And so there, there are definitely many parks that are close by to Greenspring where you can go with your balls and your bikes, uh, but that's just, that's not the type of park we are. Um, and it is always heartbreaking um, as the manager, and, and I know our staff that regularly reinforce rules that, you know, needs to approach a family that wanted to come to the park for a day um, and play ball. So we, we, we always love talking to visitors and again, that chance to educate folks about our rules. And so we encourage you, if, if you're planning a trip to Greenspring, check out that rules. We do have public garden etiquette on our website. That's a wonderful resource because uh, we want everyone to have 
a wonderful experience at Greenspring. And whether if that's your first time or your um, a thousand and first time, we want everyone to enjoy this very, this truly very special place that we have here in Alexandria. And thanks for those reminders. And that's so true that Northern Virginia and the D.C. area in general are blessed with so many public parks and green spaces for our local citizens to use. And some of them, you know, might have a little bit different uh, usage and rules around them to check those out before you visit. So a little bit about Greenspring itself. So you turned 50 last year, but that's not the total age of the property, correct? Oh, uh, goodness, no. The The property goes back uh, centuries. And uh, actually the historic house, which is still standing today um, and is, um, you know, we, we look forward to having it uh, reopen for, for walk-in visitation again right now, closed um, for, for the for the walk-in visitation. Um, but the historic house has actually been dated through dendrochronology back to 1784. Uh, we know at that time it was owned by the Moss family and they had a, a 500 acre farm here at Greenspring. And so the 50th anniversary is actually the anniversary of the, of when the last private owners, Michael and Belinda Strait, uh, donated that house as well as the original 18 acres of the gardens um, to Fairfax County Park Authority. That happened on October 26, 1970. So in 2020, it was our golden anniversary. We were celebrating 50 years of Greenspring Gardens being a park with Fairfax County Park Authority and the wonderful gift uh, made by Michael and Belinda Strait. I love that a golden anniversary. So because of COVID, obviously some of those anniversary plans got delayed or postponed, uh, but some things did happen. So how did you celebrate the gold in that golden anniversary? Yes, you know, it's, I, I feel like 2020 was a big year and, and lots of organizations, um, the Park Authority included, had milestone anniversaries. The Park Authority is also celebrating its 70th anniversary um, that were either kind of postponed, put on hold, rescheduled. Um, and I am, I'm very glad to say that we, how we plan, how we were able to celebrate the 50th, um, we, we wanted to, you know, celebrate this, this golden anniversary all year long. So we did, we did start last January, uh, with different programs. We had, uh, tea programs. We have a wonderful uh, historian over at the Historic House, uh, Debbie Wall. Uh, she is a terrific interpreter, just a wonderful programmer. And so we were able to do uh, a few programs early in 2020 uh, before the shutdown that were all themed around the anniversary, celebrating our history. Um, and then a lot of the programs, be because then of the, of of COVID and, and the ways that we were, were shut down. Um, a lot of things did have to be um, postponed and, and rescheduled, but we are back to programming uh, here at the Park Authority in Greenspring. And so a lot of the, the celebration continues. And I think this is what I'm gonna call is the silver lining of the pandemic 
is that we're going to be able to celebrate this huge milestone uh, anniversary uh, for two years in a row. So I'm, I'm going to take that as a silver lining and something to celebrate. Uh, the big way, I would say the number one way that we want to celebrate, and it's, and it's really a way that we want to commemorate this special uh, anniversary, is through our Moongate Garden project. We are so excited to have announced this project. Um, we want to install a Moongate here at Greenspring. We love the idea of a Moongate for many reasons, um, from the from their beginnings in ancient China and how they spread um, now through the world. Uh, you know, Moongates are uh, a beautiful element in many public gardens and many botanical gardens, um, not only here in our in the United States but across the world, uh, and also too in in private gardens and in private estates. And they're so varied in design. We just love the versatility, the, the diversity um, that you see in Moongates. Um, and so we knew we wanted one. And, 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 and researching this idea of, okay, this would be a wonderful garden element to add to Greenspring. We know that our visitors would go crazy for it. It's going to provide a beautiful backdrop for photography, uh, an, an opportunity for uh, events. Um, you know, we have our white gazebo, we have the pond gazebo. We envision this as another uh, wonderful place uh, that folks can have for small and intimate ceremonies. Um, but then we also were so excited about a Moongate because of the ways that it also ties to our Beatrix Ferrand landscape. Kathy, I'm, I'm sure you know we do um, here at Greenspring. Uh, actually, it was Michael and Belinda Street, the last private owners uh, that commissioned Beatrix Ferrand um, in, in the 40s, in the early 40s, to come out here at Greenspring. That's why she was also finishing up her work at Dumbarton Oaks, uh, that she was able to come out here and design the historic landscape that we have here at Greenspring. Mm -hmm. it, it complete, uh, the, the landscape is, has been restored uh, by the Garden Club of Virginia. Uh, it is beautiful with a boxwood hedge. There's a crescent-shaped wall. That wall is, is a mix of granite stone as well as rose quartz. And Beatrix Farron, even though she did not design a Moongate here at Greenspring, she did design one for the Rockefellers um, up at their garden in Seal Arbor, Maine. So we knew it was also something that was part of her design palette, even though she, we didn't see it here from her at Greenspring. So we love the idea of a Moongate adding that element to our public garden, the ties to Beatrix. Uh, we want the structure itself to reflect that historic landscape that Beatrix Rand designed for Michael and Belinda Strait. So a, a mix of stone um, and other kind of traditional elements of a Moongate um, mixed with a little metal. Again, it is it is our 50th anniversary. Um, so we, we just love this idea of the way that it celebrates our past, the our first 50 years, and how it can represent the, the future with our next 50 years. We love the symbolism that Moongates have in gardens for, um, for safe entry, um, good blessings uh, for, for known as, as people walk through them. 
We love the idea of the place of, of what they do for garden of, of providing sanctuary and a place of quiet contemplation for painters, a place to read, a place to picnic. Um, so we are just so jazzed about the Moongate Garden Project. That sounds so exciting. And I know the Farron design landscape is the Crescent Garden behind the historic house. Um, so where exactly is the Moongate going to be situated in the garden? Excellent question, Kathy. Um, we are working, uh, we, we have an idea. Um, we would like it uh, close, um, for those that are familiar with Green Spring Gardens, um, close to our edible garden, as well as the shrub border. And so what we are currently doing is we are working with our archaeology and collections branch, uh, part of our cultural resources uh, team here and part of our due diligence um, of, of scouting that perfect location for Moongate. So we are currently working with archaeology um, on evaluating what we're hoping to be the location. So it, it, it would not be 100% final yet, but it is, we, we hope that it will be just outside that historic landscape uh, on the side of the edible garden um, is, is, is the current thinking, Kathy. Hmm, can't wait to see that. And for those not familiar with Beatrice Farron's work, uh, she also designed locally Dumbarton Oaks, and that was considered one of the masterpieces of her career. Yes. She was a early female landscape designer and was active, I think, designing for almost 60 years. So many, many private gardens, but also many public gardens um, can still be visited that show her work and just wonderful, wonderful work that she did. She was a trailblazer um, as a female landscape architect, for sure. And it is my understanding that I do believe that um, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Greenspring represents her, her only commission in the Commonwealth. And I think that we remain one of the, uh, one of the few intact uh, Beatrix Farron landscapes. Yeah, that's my understanding too, Nicole, is that for some reason, <laughs> she worked a lot in D.C. and the East Coast and, and up, up around Boston and that area as well. But very few um, in the South and no other Virginia sites that we know of. And of course, a lot of them have been lost to time, you know, changes in, in ownership. Uh, but there are still some, of course, foot photographic records of those. Yeah, that and comparison. she was a wonderful designer. Um, just I, I, I've been all of her work. I've always enjoyed. Um, and, and, and just her principles, uh, I, I think, are are still true today of, of how she designed landscapes. I, I think we can learn a lot from her style as well as, as others. Um, but we're, we, we are very proud of our Beatrix Fran landscape here at Greenspring. And justifiably so. And uh, also about your landscape. So you said when it became a park 50 years ago, it became a public garden. Uh, you had, I think, 18 acres at that time, but you've expanded since then, correct? Yes. Oh, thank you. I meant to mention that, Kathy. Yes. Yeah, so originally, the original um, gift from the uh, Michael and Belinda Strait was, was the historic house, that 1784 historic house and those 18 acres. Today, the Park Authority has grown uh, Greenspring to just slightly more than 31 acres. And 
part of that is kind of a meandering path downhill around to some water features, little ponds. And that area seems so different from the areas that are closer up and more intensely gardened. Are there future plans for expanding those gardens there? Um, as far as expanding gardens, um, we always want to enhance all of our spaces. We don't have any current plans for extending um, any, any current expansion, but we always have plans for enhancements. But yeah, those the, the two ponds that we have down there and what we refer to as kind of the lower portion of the gardens have been extremely popular always. Um, but I would say through the pandemic and, and like all park systems, uh, Greenspring has seen a, a significant increase in visitation. Um, and we and we love that. We we love that people are are finding us either again for that first time or the 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 hundred and first time, as I said before. Um, but the ponds have been wildly popular. But they are they're they're a little less um, formally gardened. Uh, they they do have some beautiful gardens down there. There's there's a bog down there, and of course uh, you can pick up the trail from that that those lower gardens into the Virginia Native Plant Garden as well. That it is all yes, it's all less less formal than the, the the demonstration gardens that you will find closer to the the horticulture center. I, I always like to think of our horticulture center as our visitor center. So if you kind of think that is as um, home based, if you will, yes, the the formal gardens, what we refer to as our demonstration gardens, are around the building. Um, then the, the we they become more and more informal um, as you head get down to the ponds. But definitely a very popular place. And, and through the spring and summer, not so much today. Oh, but families, um, kids love the turtles, uh, the fish. You, we have carp fish, they're uh, bluegill fish, just a lot of stuff to see and experience um, and, and breathe just good old fresh air. Uh, of course, we also have turkey cock run coming through the gardens uh, in the lower section as well. So just a beautiful place to view wildlife, to sit and enjoy a park bench. Um, and have a really nice walk. Yeah, and that's a great point as well, that even in our own home gardens, usually what happens is, of course, around your home is the most intensely gardened, and as you go out into the landscape, it becomes less and less formal um, in many cases. Yeah, I, that's a common design practice, uh, I think, mm -hmm. uh, within landscape again. Getting way into to more and more of nature, if you will. Correct. And also because you're bordered by some uh, forested and more naturalistic property, you can kind of blend in that area. I, I think so, Kathy. I think that's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. And so let's give a little bit for the visitors, uh, future visitors, we'll call them, who don't know what's at Green Spring. So when you first are approaching the Horticultural Center, uh, also known as a visitor center to many people, then there's a circular drive in front that boasts a rock garden. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then the, maybe the children's garden and maybe the townhouse demonstration gardens. Absolutely. Um, so our rock garden, yeah, we, we have a beautiful rock garden um, that is directly in front of the horticulture center there. It's kind of, we have a roundabout there. 
Um, and in the circle of the roundabout is this rock garden. Um, and Brenda, I, I, you were here when it was installed. I, it was originally installed by uh, Don Humphreys. Brenda, do you remember the year? He started working on it approximately in 1985, 1986, probably mostly starting in 1986. Great. And it, and it hosts, you know, different alpine plants. And we were very um, fortunate and excited a few years ago that we added an additional crevice garden to that rock garden. Um, that was exciting for us. We actually, um, Green Spring received uh, um, a grant from, from NARGS. Uh, the North American Rock Garden Society for for the addition of that crevice garden, um, and it's just fun. It's it's obviously a totally different way to garden in there. Uh, Brenda can speak more to the the different style of plants in there, but certainly it's popular with our photographers, uh, with visitors. There's small walking paths in there that you can go in and see the different. Um, gardens that we have there, because obviously with the rock garden, the scale of, of the rock garden, the plants in there is a different experience than you'll see in some of our other demonstration gardens. Brenda, is there anything you wanted to add about the rock garden before we go on to the children's? Just an excellent collection of uh, small plants. And right now we have a beautiful heath in bloom, Kramer's red heath. That's probably the showiest plant. So we have plants almost all year in bloom in the rock garden. Yeah, I wanted to say that was one of my favorite parts of visiting Green Spring Gardens is the fact that the rock garden out front always looks good all year round and is a great demonstration of how you can have something in bloom all the time. And I think at the most what you call weather stressful times of the year, maybe say February and August, that's when the rock garden seems to shine the brightest. And I must add, it's what I see from my office window. So I, I, I agree, Kathy. I think it's awesome. I, I love that we, it's got interest all year long because I know personally I, I enjoy it every day or every working day, I should say. Um, Kathy, you also asked us about our children's garden. This has been another very popular mm -hmm. spot. Um, and and this, is a, this is a garden that we have definitely noticed a significant increase um, in families um multiple generations uh, of families coming to visit the children's garden um, it is curated by our uh, green spring extension master gardeners and they have done a fabulous job with the design of that garden um, they've really tried to appeal uh, to the different senses so in that garden not only from the tactile um, touch of, of different plants uh, they have created a xylophone um, there are little places like little huts for the kids to hide in. Um, it's, it's really designed for, I think well, it can be enjoyed by all ages, please don't get me wrong. Uh, but they focus the design, um, and, and especially with some of the sensory experiences for that early childhood, um, visitor that really to develop that love of exploration, of surprise, which is always cool in the garden. We love the element of surprise every time we turn the corner. Uh, but the children's garden, it's been great for families. Um, it has its own weather station, a, a kid-friendly weather station in there. Um, it's just awesome. In non-COVID times, it does also host a little free library. Um, we, we have at the moment 
um, closed the Little Free Library just you know, to avoid additional touch points for our visitors. We, we, we want everyone to maintain um, their, their, you know, obviously their, their health and safety while they're visiting us here. But a lot of cool things for that children's garden. And we are very grateful to the Green Spring uh, Master Gardeners for all of their, their passion and hard work that they put into that garden. Um, it definitely shows. It is such a fun area, even for adults. I'm going to say, even though it says children's, <laughs> don't be afraid to go in there. And there's some great photos to be taken as well in that Absolutely, section. yes. And then not far from that is... Yes, the townhouse gardens. Uh, these are gardens. So our townhouse gardens uh, are, three, um, are three spaces that um, are directly adjacent to one another. And the, the goal of these gardens, what we're demonstrating here is how to garden in small spaces. You know, the, the majority of residents in Fairfax County are living um, in, in townhomes. Uh, so, and, and they love to garden. Uh, so what we want to demonstrate is how to demonstrate in those small spaces and different things that you can do um, uh, within a garden, uh, within a townhouse garden, or just ideas for other small spaces or just other uh, cool elements to bring into um, your home garden. Uh, they're complete, uh, several, um, they all, all three of them have benches in there. So they're also a beautiful place to, to sit and enjoy the gardens, uh, uh, watch visitors, um, as well as uh, look at the different color combinations and uh, other things that we've got going on in the gardens. So you mentioned that your office overlooks the rock garden and that's one of your, you know, perks of the job, we'll call that. <laughs> but when you um, maybe take a break from sitting at your desk for a while, what other portions of the gardens oh, do you so like to visit? I, when I get out, I love to do the loop and I love to do our circle loop. Um, we have a, a lot of visitors that come and enjoy what we refer to as the circle. It's kind of, again, close to that horticulture center. Um, you can see a lot of the demonstration gardens, not only the ones that we've mentioned, the, the rock, the children's garden, the townhouse gardens, but you walk by the edible garden, the arbor garden, our concentric garden, um, the white gazebo garden. Um, so I love to go out and I love to make that circle. And I love to, if I have time, I love to make that circle a little longer and then I'll, I'll get off the circle and I'll go down through the Virginia native plant garden. We have a trail back through there that goes, uh, that takes you through that garden, again, across the creek. It will bring you uh, around to the ponds. And then I love to come back up through the ponds, walk by the historic house, and then I'll capture the rest of, of the Vista garden as well as the long border on my way back. So I love that loop uh, that I can do. I can see most of the gardens with that loop and it feels good. And we have many visitors that do that loop multiple times uh, to get their exercise in. So that's always nice to see our visitors out there too. But that, that's what I, when I get out, that, that's, that is my secret uh, circle that I do. That sounds like a lot of fun. And there's also an edible garden on the property, which used to be curated, I think, by yes. Cindy Brown, who has moved on to Smithsonian Gardens and now is... Um, done by Pam Smith and the local master yes, gardeners. Yes, yes. So that... after Cindy Brown um, went to Smithsonian, 
Um, Nancy Olney, who has retired now from Green Spring, she, she was the horticulturist of the Edible Garden for years and years and did a really fabulous job with that space. You know, we've talked about year-round interest. Uh, Nancy took that uh, Edible Garden and she turned it into a, a four-season garden as well. That's just fabulous. And when she retired, um, again, very grateful to Pam Smith, our community court supervisor and unit coordinator for the Green Spring Master Gardeners. They stepped up, uh, they started then also curating that additional garden. And in this, the time of the pandemic, everything that was grown uh, within the edible garden, the, these past from the spring, summer, and, and through the fall harvest uh, was actually donated uh, by the Master Gardeners to a local food bank. Uh, so that felt real good for Green Spring, especially during um, the pandemic. That's wonderful to hear. That's often a question of visitors to public gardens when they see edibles in the garden is who gets to eat them and what happens to them. So that's great to know that they're donated to the food bank this past year. Yes. And it, forgive me, I I want to tell you the, the amount of pounds that was donated, um, but I don't want to get it wrong. But it was a very impressive amount of produce that went, um, again, to the, the, the local food bank that our Extension Master Gardeners worked with. And um, I'm just, I'm so grateful to them and for, for many ways, but definitely uh, the Edible Garden is, is another way that we are very grateful to our Master Gardeners. Definitely. So moving away from the Edible Garden into the ornamental plant collection, and I want to bring Brenda back in here for this portion. Uh, we wanted to talk in particular about Green Springs National Collection of Witch Hazels um, and that you have over 200 uh, plants in your collection. And where in the gardens would people see them and uh, how? Do you have? <laughs> it seems like it seems like almost an impossible number to fit that many different uh, witch hazels into your collection, even though they're you know either considered a large shrub or a small tree. Uh, that's still a lot of plants. I get it. Yeah, it's uh, amazing that we've been able to squeeze them in, and a huge number of them are in our entrance garden. So as you first come in off of Braddock Road, that's the largest number. And on the overflow parking lot area to your left on the um, slope and toward the back, as you go toward the stream, there are a number two in the springhouse overlook, which is the area to the left and back of the historic house. And then below that is the springhouse itself. Um, and then there's other ones scattered here and there um, in other gardens, like native uh common witch hazel in the native plant garden. And so it, we have approximately 213 plants right now and 114 unique selections. And what makes witch hazel special, do you think, Brenda? Why did that collection come to be? Our former director, Chris Strand, who is now at Winter in Delaware, he um, loved witch hazels and he thought that'd be a great thing to develop at Greenspring in the collection since we had lots of space. And so he started building it and we got certification um, with the um, American um, Public Gardens Association for our collection. And we've just been adding to them ever since. And what makes them special is, uh, you know, being a large shrub or a small tree, they're easier to fit in the landscape than lots of plants. And they have lots of 
interest uh, for the Asian ones in the winter. So pretty soon in February, we're going to have a burst of color. Right now, they're just starting to put out their strap-like petals a little bit. And then, um, then the um, uh, plants will bloom into March. And sometimes even April if it's really cold here. And then some of them are very fragrant on warm days. Some have a hint of fragrance. And then there's some that have spectacular fall color, like George's um, is an example. And then um, in the fall, you get the native common witch hazel, uh, Hamamelis virginiana blooming um, at the same time as it gets golden leaves. So they have a long season of interest. That's what makes them great plants. And most of them have kind of a, I would call it a vase-like shape or can be pruned to that. So they are a nice, maybe we'd call it a mid to back of the bed plant for filling in. And if listeners didn't catch that Latin name, Hamamelis virginiana for the common witch hazel, yes, that was named for being discovered in the British colony at that time of Virginia. Uh, so a nice Virginia collection connection there for the witch hazel. Yes, definitely. It's a, it's a cool thing that botanists got to Virginia early. <laughs> yes, yeah, so many um, of the Latin names have Virginiana in them just because of that. And you're like, <clears throat> us Marylanders are a little peeved. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but exactly. So um, for the home gardener who would want to add a witch hazel or two or three to their home garden, what would you recommend for siding them and maybe a couple of the varieties that you think would do best for a mid-Atlantic gardener? They actually prefer, of the Asian types anyway, full sun to light shade and moist sites. So um, the native one now is a bit different. Um, our native common witch hazel, that can take part shade, but of course it won't bloom as heavily in part shade. And then there's a native one to the Ozarks too that can take a bit more shade. Uh, Hamamelis um, vernalis, um, the vernal witch hazel that can take a bit more shade than the Asian ones. Um, you know, you know, and if you end up in part shade, you're just not going to get as heavy a bloomer as showy fall color. As far as cultivars go, you know, there's a huge number of cultivars. Part of the issue is um, finding um, what you want. Um, Tim Brotsman is a wholesaler in Ohio and um, he has not put his list online for sale yet this year, but um, we get a huge number of witch hazels from him. And Aurora is a big favorite. Aurora is fragrant and has a golden uh, flower with touch of orange. And that's actually in the entrance garden and right near our horticulture center in the front garden, which Alda um, is taking care of currently. And then, of course, Helena, which is, you can say it, Jelena, is not fragrant, but she's very popular. And she's one of our biggest plants um, in the long border. And she's orange um, flowered. And then um, just a, a one that uh, it was one of my favorites is Chris. And it makes me think of Chris Strand. Chris kind of uh, is very vigorous, has yellow flowers, and is just a spectacular plant in bloom. And it, it tends to peak in late um, February. Hmm. And one of my favorite things about witch hazels is that they do bloom along the branch 
before they leaf out, really. So the, the flowers are very prominent. And how do you describe the flowers, Brenda? Because I've heard spider-like, and I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of people, I guess, don't like spiders. So um, there's a really beautiful one now called Spanish spider um, that's uh, like a rust color and a yellow combined um, that we have in our overflow garden. Um, the, um, I think it's better to, I suppose, described as strap-like. And so they open up when it's warm out and then when it gets cold, they roll up again. So that's why the petals last so long is they roll up when it gets very cold. That's an interesting observation. And I always describe them as like little fairies dancing along the stem. To me, they're like, they look like little tutus <laughs> or little. Yeah, they do. Like a little skirt. Little, mm-hmm, little yeah. skirts. So they're so cute. But that's a great observation that they do roll up um, and save themselves, uh, you know, from the worst of the the ice maybe and frost out there. And for um, a range of bloom time, so from the earliest in the season to the latest, um, do you have any specific cultivars for that? Like, what's your earliest blooming in the green spring collection? Some of the Asian ones will start to even bloom in the fall, but it's light and it can be even a different color. Um, so that's an odd, odd thing about them. You often get them blooming in November even. So, um, they are totally dependent on weather. So some of the ones that bloom the earliest actually aren't the showiest. Um, one of the earliest bloomers is a Chinese witch hazel called Wisley Supreme. And we have a young plant now. We had an older plant that was quite beautiful, but, um, that's one of the earlier blooming ones. Um, so the hybrid witch hazels were the Japanese witch hazel was crossed with the Chinese witch hazel. Uh, Chinese witch hazel is showier. So, um, so you you know the Japanese ones aren't nearly as showy, but they often have gorgeous yellow fall color. So it's hard to say. <laughs> so I would say buy buy lots. Yeah, I'm going to have um, a tour of great shrubs for the home garden on February 27th at Green Spring, which will be outdoors. So we're still conducting tours and I'll be talking about witch hazels that day and other plants that are of interest in the garden. Like right now we have a really beautiful Prunus mume or flowering apricot in bloom in the Springhouse Overlook. It's called Big Joe. It's got white flowers and it's holding up pretty well in the cold. So I don't know what mechanism they use, um, you know, keep those white flowers so beautiful, but it's spectacular right now. And for witch hazel care, um, do you fertilize and how much do you prune, if at all? I do not fertilize hardly anything except for indoors, you know, when you're growing things in pots, to tell you the truth, or, you know, some vegetables occasionally um, when I first put them out. And pruning um, only as needed, only light pruning. You do need a lot of um, suckers removed because the hybrid witch hazels are typically grafted. And Tim Brotsman is an expert on that. Tim's actually giving a podcast or a webinar on um, February 25th at 3 p.m. for the International Plant Propagators Group or Society. And so I'm excited to hear what Tim has to say about it. But um, the um, uh, you do have to remove suckers a couple times a year on those. The um, Native common witch hazel, you don't care if it suckers or not. It's up to you. You know, if it bothers you, take them out. If it doesn't bother you, just leave them. Um, 
they're on their own roots usually when they root them as cuttings or they grow them from seed. And then the Hamamelis vernalis or the vernal witch hazel, it um, also can root on its own, um, grow on its own roots and doesn't need to be grafted. So you can take the suckers off those if you want, if you think it looks better. If you don't care, you can leave them. So the hybrid um, witch hazels do take a little more maintenance. And for removing those suckers, do you just cut them off at the ground yeah, level? Yeah, you just cut them off at the ground level. And speaking of at the ground level, there is usually plenty of root space around a witch hazel to do other plantings. So it's it's a nice plant for a small space garden. And do you have any recommendations for ground covers or fillers to put below a witch hazel that maybe um, either reflect some of the colors in it or are just nice companion plants? We like to use the witch hazels obviously together because there's red, golden, orange, yellow forms. So they play off each other well. And we also plant lots of small bulbs and hellebores around them. Um, and, and so those plants do really well with them. So the, some of the small bulbs we plant are some of the early blooming daffodils, Scylla, um, for example, um, February gold is a great daffodil with them. And I can imagine that um, from that collection, maybe other collections are being added at Greenspring. Do you have any other specialty plant collections to share? Yeah, we have uh, uh, lots of hellebore selections that we've um, uh, planted over the years. And uh, pine knot, Dick at Pine Knot Nursery, we get a lot from Dick and from other sources too, local nurseries. And um, of course, we have a huge um, collection in general of woody plants over the years um, um, throughout all the gardens. And the Virginia Native Plant Garden, of course, is an outstanding collection with um, the help of the Virginia Native Plant Society funding intern for many years and not last year, but most years. And also they help um, pay for lots of things in the initial period when the garden was first put in starting in 1990. Um, so we have a range of collections ranging from, you know, edibles you can grow yourself, um, and that are more formal. And then we go all the way into more naturalistic collections like the Virginia Native Plant Garden. And I, I particularly love, I think I can say which my favorite two, three gardens are, I guess, that I take care of would be the entrance garden, the arbor garden below the house, because that's like a giant cottage garden and the Virginia native plant garden. But I love all the gardens. Yeah, I was going to say that might be like picking <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we love, of course, the um, arbor garden right at the moment because we have a Rufus hummingbird that has come in from the West and overwintering there, a female. And they, she probably came in because of the um, major wheeler trumpet honeysuckle. So as far as our plant records go, we have over, I think it's over 12,000 entries in our records. So we um, have a huge collection of plants all the way from tender plants to hardy plants. So that Rufus hummingbird is just hanging out by himself in the garden? Yeah, she's, and we have a feeder there with sugar water, which our um, front desk staff or Lisa is taking care of and replacing the, um, uh, with, with sugar syrup um, weekly and then we have a heater on another one in the gazebo garden and then we have a decorative one right by the horticulture center 
I can imagine that area birders are, are coming in. Oh yeah. They're very uh, excited about it. And then this, um, past year, they were very excited about the Mississippi kite. There's a Mississippi kite now that's nesting in the golf course. And that comes a lot into the overflow garden that I've seen all of a sudden that beautiful hawk will come flying into the, um, the raptor will come flying into the overflow too. So it's, it's wonderful to see. So we have lots of birds at Green Spring, lots of wildlife, lots of bees. And, um, you know, you see deer, fox, um, turtles, like, you know, uh, people come a lot for the wildlife. And bringing Nicole back into the conversation, there are a few other features of Green Spring that we haven't mentioned yet. And that would include um, the plant shop. Yes. Thank you, Kathy. And thank you, Brenda. Um, always love hearing more details about our collection. Uh, yes. So we have our very own plant shop, formerly known as the, the, the Golden Gate Plant Shop. Uh, pardon me, the Garden Gate Plant Shop. Um, so it is closed for the season. Um, it will We will reopen the plant shop in April. With everything unknown right now with the virus and, and how the vaccine, uh, roll back, the rollout of vaccines and, and, and getting um, uh, folks vaccinated, we have made the decision in April we will be curbside. Uh, this was a, a new program for us, like so many, uh, like, like everyone, like everyone, we had to pivot. We had to figure out how are we going to operate this plant shop in the COVID environment when our facilities are still closed. So I, I have to applaud our staff, Kathy. They worked so hard on inventing um, a new offering, a new opportunity uh, for, for shoppers of the plant shop, for our visitors. Um, you know, so often because our, our plant shop is is operated by the friends of Green Spring, um, our friends group who we lovingly call Frogs, people want to shop there first. Um, they, that's where they want to. That's where they want to buy their plants from. Not only because we have a fabulous selection, our plant shop coordinator Alda does just a remarkable job, but they also want to show their support for Green Spring and Frogs. So staff worked really hard on figuring out how how is this going to look in, in the pandemic. So they did uh, develop a curbside program that is it's it's a phone order system. So you can go online. Um, online you will you, you will find when we open back up the uh, available plants, uh, different information about them, and a resource guide. And then you can call in your your order to us here at Greenspring. Our front desk staff will take that order. And then we'll, uh, Aldo will we'll get everything ready for you. We've got a couple uh, choices of dates as well as timeframes for pe people to pick up a, in a contactless way that keeps everyone safe and happy because they're getting plants. So uh, thanks for remembering the gift shop, uh, the plant shop, Kathy. And of course, um, no podcast about Green Spring will be complete without talking about frogs. And, and the plant shop is just one example of the many partnerships that we have with frogs. Um, and just one way, just one of the many, many ways that they support us. Uh, so here at Green Spring from our great unit of Extension Master Gardeners, the local chapter of our uh, VNPS and frogs, we are, we are strongly supported by the community uh, that we serve and, and we, we are honored uh, to be here uh, to serve. There's such a wonderful garden community around you. 
that's so wonderful to see. And we're recording this at the end of January. Normally, we would be hosting, we being Washington Gardener Magazine, uh, our annual seed exchange next weekend uh, at Green Spring Gardens. But because of COVID, that's been a little delayed this year. And we've rescheduled it to March 27th um, in hopes with some of the vaccines and maybe some of the COVID protocols, we can at least do a stripped down version of our normal seed exchange. That is what we're hoping, uh, Kathy. Um, I know we are getting inquiries from the public about, hey, are you guys still going to do the seed exchange? Um, Of course, whatever we do and, you know, we'll always be CDC compliant. We'll follow all guidance coming from CDC. Our, our local health department here in Fairfax, and of course, um, with Fairfax County Park Authority, uh, with the number one uh, priority of keeping the public and our community safe. So uh, we do look forward to that program. It, it will probably look a little different this year than, than it has in past years, but we can't wait for uh, the 2021 seed exchange. Definitely, and we'll keep our listeners updated on that and you can also find more details at seedswap.com as we get them in and for our listeners who want to visit green spring gardens i wanted to point out green spring singular gardens with a s because we often hear it said green springs plural so on the internet our url is www. FairfaxCounty.gov slash parks slash green hyphen spring. And so from our website, uh, you can find information about our programs, uh, not only uh, the upcoming seed exchange with the Washington Gardener, uh, but other information on winter lecture series. We do have uh, two lectures left this Sunday, uh, January uh, 31st. Uh, it will be a uh, Eight Essential Tips for the Deer Resistant Garden uh, with Karen Chapman. And then later in February, we will have Doug Tallamy uh, come on February 21st and and talk about nature's best hope. So you can find information about uh, the seed exchange, these programs and others from that website. And of course, we welcome phone calls. Uh, You can always call us at 703-642-642. 5173. I'll say that once more. 703-642-5173 with any questions about an upcoming visit or program or share an idea that you have uh, with our staff. Um, We'd love to hear from you. We want to see you here. And for upcoming programs, um, Brenda had mentioned her uh, outdoor walking tour on February 27th, and that's a Saturday, I believe. Yes. So we, we and again, we we are trying to do as much as possible outdoors these days. Um, we 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 definitely have found that a lot of people are comfortable uh, again being outside with, with social distancing guidelines and wearing masks. Um, we do find that our outdoor programs have been have been um, relevant and and I think needed. I think there's a lot of folks that are that are ready to do, um, you know, something outside, and, and we look forward to seeing you guys here. Well, thank you, and thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Brenda, for joining us on the podcast this week. We are looking forward to seeing those witch hazels in bloom soon. And the snow dusting them.
that'll be some pretty pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So they bring your smartphone and bring, or bring your actually nice camera, which maybe be collecting dust right now on a shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and if they're going to post those photos on social media, um, I think you want them to use the hashtag, hashtag Green Spring Gardens, correct? correct? Great. And uh, you, I know you have uh, active social media accounts on Instagram and Facebook, so you can follow, even if you can't get to the garden yourself, to see what, what is of interest and what's in bloom right now in season. Yes, hashtag Fairfax Parks. Oh, Kathy, thank you so much. Brenda, thank you. Thank you both. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant Profile, Japanese Apricot Prunus mume, commonly called Japanese apricot, are often mistaken for their cousins, the Japanese cherry tree. However, the Japanese apricot blooms much earlier, usually from February to March in the Mid-Atlantic region. The Prunus mume flowers have more rounded petals than cherry blossoms, and they're more fragrant as well. It is native to China, Korea, and Japan. You will also hear it referred to as the Chinese plum or Japanese plum. This small tree grows to about 15 to 20 feet tall. It is winter hardy to USDA zones 6 through 8. It prefers average soils with medium moisture that are well-drained acidic loams. It will not do well in heavy clay and poorly drained wet soils. Japanese apricot likes a location in full sun to part shade with best flowering in full sun. The Japanese apricot is primarily grown for ornamental purposes, especially for those late winter blooms. The flowers are followed by small, greenish-yellow fruits. The apricots ripen in summer and are technically edible, though very bitter if eaten straight from the tree. The fruits may be harvested for use in making jams and preserves. In Japanese cuisine, the prunus mume fruits are made into a mouth-puckering, sour and salty pickled fruit treat. The tree requires little care, and if you need to prune it ever, do so immediately after it finishes flowering. Try planting a Japanese apricot tree in your garden today. You can grow that. Politics and Gardening German writer Thomas Mann famously said, everything is politics. Up until this last election cycle, I would have disagreed with him and argued that gardening is the one area that we can keep free of partisan issues. Many of us turn to the garden to get away from such concerns and to find some inner peace. Yet, I find politics coming up in the gardening world in a myriad of surprising ways recently. In Washington Gardener magazine, I have always strived to follow my professional journalism training and to stay neutral. No matter who occupied the White House, we still covered what went on in the gardens and grounds. 
I found, though, that any mention of those 18 acres of land invited blowback from both sides of the political spectrum. Does it have to be this way? It is such a divisive world now that it seems any mention of a topic as previously neutral as discussing ways of fencing deer out of one's garden can erupt into an online flame war. Maybe we can all take a breather and go out to pull a few weeds before we participate in such volatile threads. Then there's the matter of whether the political beliefs of those we purchase gardening products is our business to know or not. If you knew the owners of a seed company donated to a certain presidential campaign, would you stop buying from them? What if the owners of a famous plant nursery published a catalog featuring right-wing conspiracy theories on its cover? Would that matter to you? I don't have all the answers, and I think all of us have to make those decisions based on our own belief systems. I think I'll spend some time this week starting seedlings, tuning out politics for my own sanity and self-care. Happy gardening, everyone. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.